The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of 10,000 things. Even desireless, one can see the mystery. Even desiring, one can see the manifestations. These two spring from the same source, but differ in name. This appears as darkness, darkness within darkness, the gate to all mystery. Adil and Neil, excited for another episode of Made You Think. Yeah, after we skipped this book, the last time we all were together. We've been putting this off for a solid month and a half, which is good because yes. it's an extremely long book that probably took us all quite a while to read. <laughs> and so we needed the extra time to prepare. Words. It's a real Atlas shrug. <laughs> it is, yes. <laughs> uh, well, I'm drinking green tea this time instead of coffee to try to like be more in... <clears throat> This Zen mindset, but I see a deal is drinking black coffee, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> right, on that note, have you guys heard the, I can't remember which theory or who came up with this, uh, but I, I heard it referenced by uh, Bern Hobart, which is that like every, uh, every financial crash has a specific drug behind it. <laughs> Okay. And so the, I haven't heard of this. The, the couple, the couple examples he gave was like one was the whole mergers and acquisitions, like hostile takeover crash in the like eighties or whatever, uh, was very cocaine fueled because, you know, that's something that you would do if you're on cocaine is just like go out and take over other people's companies. Like, Oh, this is my, and like the, the most recent financial crash or whatever, like specifically in crypto, at least seems to be very Adderall driven. Where it's oh, very yeah. like people hyper optimizing spreadsheets because like only if you're on copious amounts of Adderall could you be obsessed with being in a spreadsheet <laughs> for 18 hours a day, like trying to get, you know, a little half percent of leverage out of, you know, some random trade discrepancy between two exchanges. Uh, fun theory. And the way I was going to tie it in is I've heard a similar one for philosophies, right? Like different philosophies are inspired by different drugs or something. And so there's something to like, like. Eastern philosophy is not like a like a coffee philosophy, right? Mm. Like the tea, it's a tea, tea I think, is definitely the the better drug. Uh, <clears throat> what would be a good like coffee philosophy? Capitalism. Yeah, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why cocaine is just like the next level of that, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, hypercapitalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so for anybody who, I, I, I always wonder like how many people actually don't know the title of the episode. It's got to be like 1%, right? But for, for those of you who didn't read the title, <laughs> yeah, it's in the feed. It was on, on <laughs> I, I like to imagine there's somebody who has a very long list of like up next episodes. <laughs> they're, they're like five minutes into this. Like what book are you guys talking what about? What book are you guys today? <laughs> so the book today is Tao Te Ching. Uh, and what, what bit of background should we get on this book? So one of the things that stood out, uh, I mean, so one of the oldest works of Eastern philosophy, uh, something that stood out pretty interesting to me in researching the book for the show is, uh, you think of it as, or it's usually the author is usually referenced as Lao Tzu, or I think I'm pronouncing that right. But that might not actually be a person because I guess it literally translates to like old master. And so it could actually just be a collection of teachings from a variety of, you know, sages, you know, spiritual leaders uh, or, you know, what groups kind of like coalesced upon and then attributed it to a 
general idea of a great leader instead of a specific person like we might think of most other books being attributed to. Yeah, it might just be like from a school of thought or from a school, like maybe one particular school or something where they were totally. just collecting these ideas. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's I... an interesting bit of background too, because I, I, I do think like for this book, I mean, some of it's hard to tell if it's translation or the book itself, but it does, it doesn't read like, like there's no, and then it ties to the theme of the book too. Like there's no like author ego in it at all. Like you can't sense yeah. who the author could be in any way, shape or form. Right. Which is a little bit different yeah. from the next book we're going to do, which is Analects of Confucius, where that clearly was a very specific person and we know things about their life. Uh, and I guess the, the voice does come through a little bit differently. Like Tao Te Ching is interesting in the sense that it, it definitely feels like one of those books where you read a lot of the value into it. Like it's very profound, but also very minimalist. Yeah. And so each time you read it, you're going to resonate with different ideas. It kind of like gives you what you need, maybe would be a way of putting it. Like it's a little bit of a mirror in that sense. Uh, and so the... Yeah, I completely agree with that. Yeah. The like nameless authorlessness of it almost contributes to that where it it is like a dialogue with a teacher, but, you know, the teacher is maybe you or like what you need at the time. I think it's... It's an interesting way of thinking about it, at least. Yeah. Yeah, the mirror idea is really interesting that, like, the book gives... Because I've... I mean, I think you guys have both also read it multiple times. Yeah. And I think my... I, I have the Kindle version as well. And so I was looking at what I'd highlighted last time when I read it, which must have been five or six years ago. And it was interesting, like, what I had highlighted and what resonated with me last time versus this time. Because there was definitely some overlap, but there was also like a lot of uh, differences, like totally. things that I didn't highlight last time that I was like surprised that I didn't highlight it and things that I did highlight that I was like, oh, that's not really that interesting. You know, why did I highlight that? It's, yeah. I, I, I've read it three times. This was the third I had on a physical copy this time. And I want to start doing like the multicolor highlighting where like each time I go through, I'll do like a different color and then you know, on like the fifth read to see what the terrain kind of looks like. Cause there are things that I almost want to like double tap as like, Oh, it stood out to me then. And it stands out to me now. And there are things that I was, I read it for the first time in 2016. So I, when I, I read it uh, twice in the last few weeks and the first read was the Kindle version. The second one, one was the physical copy. And when I was reading the Kindle version, there were things that were very novel to me in 2016. Cause I hadn't started meditating yet. I hadn't started like really doing any of that kind of practice yet uh that now is like i actually just want to remove the highlight i was like we don't need this anymore like <laughs> this is part of the fabric i also feel like yeah, the mirror too. thing makes it like that's sort of a, the core of a good holy book right i, I recognize mm. like uh definition of holy here we can uh leave others to debate but uh you know it's a it's a religion and you go back, you find something new every time. And like, it's almost the, the ROI on words for a book that's like as tight and poetic as the Tao, uh, is pretty incredible. Cause I think it, maybe it's like a 30 to 40 minute read, but yeah, that's it's if you're like skimming word by word and like the proper way to engage is probably just like read a chapter and then and, and stop for a day. 
and yeah. then come back again later and read like the next chapter the next day or you know even a week later. I've definitely heard that be the like correct way to read this book. And probably I, I think a lot of other very um aphoristic philosophy too is like just take a tiny bite of it and then go sit with it for a while or let it percolate for a few days and then you know then read the next one reading it straight through is almost like not really how you're supposed to do it right i think that was in one of our notes in the research was that like even compiling this as a book almost encourages the wrong form of engagement with it like it's really what is it like 64 different lessons which yeah you're 71 i can't remember the exact number uh it's but yeah i see what you're saying where it's like not really yeah. like like a book is it, it's, it's almost, not 81 uh, chapters you know it's not meant right. to be read linearly right and it's also yeah. even misleading to even call it like a book the same way a book that you'd read from cover to cover is it's well it's not misleading it's just like they are di it's not the same form as that it's like something different exactly. i think a lot of philosophy is like that too it's like you can't really read it straight through what would be the ideal format for you guys? I mean, how would you want to consume this text? Uh, like the master teaching me with one flashcard a day, <laughs> and then I, like, and then I like, was, yeah, yeah, something like I'm almost picturing like a monk or something, you know, like some type of format like that, where I just get one of these a day, and then I have to go sit with it for the rest of the day. Yeah, I was gonna say like a thought. a fishbowl full of index cards. Yeah. Right. And then you just like reach in and you pull one out and then, right. And so you, you like go on a writing retreat or something and then you, you have no other stimulus and each morning you get to pull out one index card from the fishbowl and that's your only external stimulation for the day. And then the only other thing you have is like a pen and paper and you're just like, you know, is, alone in a cabin somewhere. Would your impression then be that the sequencing was not super relevant to it? Like, did you not get much from the ordering? I, I think I did, but I would have found a way to read value into any ordering. Individual one, yeah. They do right? feel quite like, self-contained. Yeah, I, I do think they're really self-contained. And I think that, like, to the extent that they feel like they're in the right order... That, that might just be like us backfilling a narrative or like inventing one in our heads. Whereas like if we read them in the reverse order, we would have also said like, oh yeah, this feels right. You know, but I'm sure some scholars would disagree with me. Yeah, it's actually, I never thought about the order the deal. That's a good, good question. Because the order is consistent ask. across different translations. But it's, what's so interesting to me about that? Like, so as we were starting recording here, uh, we decided we would read the you know, first passage as the opening quote. And I read like a sentence of it. And Nat was like, what are you reading? And yeah. The, yeah the translations I, I are like completely different. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, the translations are so different. Uh, so we, we should drop that website into the show notes. There's this Tao in you website where it puts three translations side by side. But it's interesting yeah. that like, even though the sequencing is the same, the translations between these are so different that, they almost mean different things. Like I, mm -hmm. I benefited a lot from looking at them together to like piece together the meaning that might be lost between them. Um, but the thing that this website doesn't actually explain is it, it puts three translations here. Uh, 
but it doesn't actually say what they're translating from. Like, is there an authoritative Chinese source that is, or are they, or are they translating different Chinese sources? And those well, also that's the mean. question that that's the real question, right? Is it like, yeah, is there one common source? And then the translation is just different authors interpretation of English, uh, Chinese to English. Like, yeah. is that the, is that where the different translations come from? Or are there multiple original texts for this? that they're using that's different. Cause I've heard the similar, like from something from a lot later in history, but Rumi's uh, poems, it's the same kind of thing. Like when you read them in English, there's all mm. this controversy of like the main guy who translated them was this like British professor and he did it. I mean, the poems are beautiful to be fair, like with the translations, but then there's like people who are like, who like actually know the original language and are like, this isn't what the poem said. Mm. <laughs> like it's a bad translation even though the work is beautiful, like what, what he created, it's just like not, it's just not what the original one says, but there is an authoritative original one. I'm curious in this case, if there's an authoritative original one or it's multiple. So I just did a quick uh, search the internet. Uh, it looks like there are three primary versions, one from a Han Dynasty scholar. Uh, well, that may be the difference then. Uh, a couple others. I'll, I'll drop this into the notes as well. So yeah, it looks like there's three, three principal versions. Oh, you're still Googling things instead of just asking chat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> what? It does look like, again, he's given that look like, no, 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 I'm I, about I to say something really interesting. Yeah. No, no, no. I lost the thought. I lost the thought. <laughs> <laughs> your once an episode, like look of extreme you know, interest and like we're hanging on the edge of our seat, but I was going to say chat GPT thinks that we don't know how many versions there are because it's been translated and interpreted and stuff so many different times throughout history, which makes it even more interesting, honestly, because that right. Then it's really like, uh, I was having this conversation Okay, this is like a totally crazy tangent example, but uh, I have a friend who's like very into Star Wars. And <clears throat> we were talking about like uh, comfort food fiction, right? Because it's like like reading fun books is fun, right? Like you don't always have to be reading something hard like, yeah. you know, we do on the show. And we were talking about what our like comfort food books were right now. And he said that he was reading through the original Star Wars books. And I said... And I said, tell me about those because George Lucas wasn't really a writer, but he came up with the original mythology and then did a bunch of other people run with it. How did that work? And he said, basically, there were like 12 authors who he gave authorized fan fiction-esque status to. And they wrote 40-odd books over a number of years, filling in all the other backstory and stuff to the Lucas movies and creating the whole star Wars universe. And he would sign off on them and everything. It was this really cool symbiosis. And according to Lucas, they were all Canon. But then when Disney bought star Wars, they said, Oh no, none of those are Canon anymore. We're creating our own Canon and we'll like authorize some of those books as still being Canon, but not others because we want to like reinterpret the story, which is really interesting because, you know, Disney can say that, but if, all the Star Wars fans say, no, these books are canon, <laughs> right? Like, it doesn't matter that you own the copyright. Like, we think this is the the real Star Wars. Like, right. they're kind of right, 
right? And so it's it's the same thing here where if even if it's a misinterpretation or whatever, if that's what all of the like modern scholars settle around, like that kind of is the right version, maybe, right? Like you, you can, it's not once it gets popular enough and reinterpreted and stuff enough, it's almost no longer yours. It's whatever people decide is the right version of it. I guess the Bible's kind of this way too, right? Like it's where a lot of the <clears throat> more modern offshoots of the Abrahamic religions kind of come from. Um, yeah. I, I wonder how like someone who is observant and uh, has like lived steeped in any of these religions would feel about this. Cause uh, my, I would wager a guess uh, for the Abrahamic religions, it's the truth is less emergent. The truth is like the original thing that like when pen touched the paper and then everything that anyone who interprets it, like reinterprets it is actually diminishing its level of truth and like corroding it from the original source. But if you, if you view something as like a philosophy of life where it is like evolving, then the reinterpretations might not necessarily be bad. Uh, it might just be an adaptation, but that like, I'd be curious for the Tao, for example, like how, how one would feel about that being reinterpreted. Cause I mean, at least I know in Islam, it's like, there's no concept of reinterpretation. It's either the truth or it's false. And there's like no gray area. But we don't have like an original Torah, right? No, they, they have some like sense yeah, of the lineage of like who authored which components and then they were kind of combined again. Uh, but yeah. yeah, there's no original. So I feel like, yeah, that, that would at least have to be in the same school as Tao Te Ching, right? In the sense of like, mm -hmm. they're... Maybe. I, could be, I, I don't know, right? I'm just speculating. But given yeah. given its age, we there's no way that we have a definitive, authoritative, this is the original Hebrew Bible, right? There's, there's definitely no original. It would have to be agreed right? upon I, to some extent. But I there is somebody... an authoritative one. What's that? I think there's, yeah, there's definitely an authoritative one that's like agreed upon by Jewish scholars, right? But to, to Adil's point about like interpretation versus the original putting pen to paper, there has to have been some degree of interpretation, right? Yeah, or yeah. We, we have the, to have lost some of the original yeah. at some point along the way. But for, uh, for the Quran, we have... Like, there's an interesting chronology, at least, to the construction of the Torah. Uh, I can throw it in the notes. I don't remember all the details off the top of my head, but there's like a few authors who are generally denoted by like single letters, like I think like j and p and then there's like a yj and there's like the like oh, their version and hmm. then you can actually sort of see the the way they were kind of combined and constructing the i, I don't want to call it the modern torah or whatever because I, I also don't know if uh there is a single accepted copy um mm. but they there is some Whereas sense the of the quran like, is the quran there's like one single accepted copy yeah, the Quran. I guess the Quran was also a lot later in history. Right, yeah. right. That might have been late enough that we do have. Yeah. No, we don't I have mean, the original compared Quran, to the Torah, it's probably a couple thousand years later, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Like six, 600 something. Wait, is there like an. I mean, I, I guess is it. Because the Bible, too, went through a long period of like changes and consolidation and stuff. I mean, I, did the Quran have yeah. that ever or no? 
they did that generally. Well, the Quran is the version that it was. Well, the Quran, yeah. I think, is different because it's just supposed to be the dictated word of God, right? It's not stories yeah. about. Yeah, people. that's a good point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The stories are compiled separately. The Bible one is interesting. I recently learned this that like uh, different, like you know, Christian schools will consider different books as revelation or not. So actually, the total mm. book count could vary from uh, one group to another. Just like Disney. Never know. They're deciding what's <laughs> canon and what's not. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Uh, that, that analogy clearly made it feel uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to find the... Uh, I I deal, so. Is that Nat's one thing per episode that makes you no, cringe? No. No, that, that hasn't no, happened that's, yet. That hasn't happened yet. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't even make the leaderboard. Come on. Comparing <laughs> religion to Star is, Wars. The is pretty high, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bar is pretty high. Um, so okay, something that, we get in? something that stood out to me reading the Tao, I, I expected it to be. I don't want to say unopinionated because obviously it has to be opinionated. It's like espousing some. Uh, it's, it's espousing a way of life. Uh, but I was surprised by one thing that I didn't notice the first time around, which was just the emphasis on inaction, even in extreme cases. I don't know if this stood out to you guys. Do you have but a specific was, one that makes you think of that? Yeah. Um, it was like 64, maybe? Yes. Yep. You want to read that one? We can just hop yeah, in. I'm just pulling it back up. Do it. Do, 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 do. Main index. Wow, these translations are so different. I'm just going to read from my quote. Um, cool. <clears throat> So the, the core part of it that stood out to me is uh, interfere with things and you'll be defeated by them. Hold on to things and you'll lose them. And I'll pull up the full context as well. Sorry, I'm just getting a little organized still. But the degree of inaction, sorry? So yeah, 64 is kind of long, but yeah. Yeah, so it's like things are easy to control while things are quiet. Things are easy to plan for far in advance. Uh, it goes on quite a bit, so I'm going to jump to the middle here. If you rush into action, you will fail. If you hold on too tight, you will lose your grip. Therefore, the master lets things take their course and thus never fails. She doesn't hold on to things and never loses them. By pursuing your goals too relentlessly, you let them slip away. If you are as concerned about the outcome, about the outcome as you are about the beginning, then it is hard to do things wrong. It is wild how different our interpretations are. Yeah, I'll send you the link. Although the message is mine is different than yours uh, to a deal, but but it like the message is still the same, but yeah. the actual words are a lot different. I just linked you guys to the uh, the website that has the three translations side by side. Yeah, um, yeah. Which one most similar to yours? Just so I can keep reading from that one in the future. Honestly, it's pretty different. <laughs> I'm like, so I, 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 I highlighted part of that, which you, which you just read your version of. I'll just read my couple of lines. People usually fail when they are on the verge of success. So give as much care to the end as to the beginning. Then there will be no failure. And. And then uh, let's see. How do you reconcile that with the 
kind of like in action. It actually feels like, cause it, it's, it sounds like it's saying two seemingly contradictory things and it's almost like implying that you need some kind of balance between the two. Like you should care, but like not hold on too strong. It almost reminds me of like a, an ending relationship. It's like the way to appear like confident and such in either a relationship or a job setting is by like not coming off as desperate and like, you know, overly attached or something like that. I think uh, maybe we'll do this like later, but it sort of reminds me of like Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, where it's very focused on kind of like finding the middle ground between deficiency and excess. And so there's this idea that like, you, you know, it's good to pursue wealth or something until you reach the point of sufficiency, but then pursuing it beyond that is where you start to harm yourself. Right. Or I think about this example a lot where, uh, cause this is like a topic in parenting, right. Where you want your kids to be healthy. You want them to be a healthy weight and fit and everything, but you also don't want to give them like body dysmorphia or eating disorders or anything like that. So how do you create a healthy relationship with weight and fitness that does not like go too far into a harmful relationship with those things? And that kind of feels like what it's saying here. There's a little bit of that, like what got you here won't get you there aspect to it of you need to like, <laughs> you need to sell the top basically. <laughs> like, you, you have to try to figure out how to thread that needle. Um, and maybe the, maybe the better analogy is like, uh, like, you know, those things that you roll a quarter into and it like, yeah, yeah. It's like that. Maybe that's sort of what you're doing with all of these virtues and vices. You like start out having no idea where the limits are. And so you, you know, you're super deficient and then you get like super over obsessed with it. And then you swing back to being too deficient. And then, you know, over time, the metronome like converges on the middle. Uh, and so that's kind of like the balance that it's telling you to aim at. Can you take a quick look at 48? I want to, yeah. yeah, I'm curious to square what you just said with 48. So I'll read one of the translations. Mm -hmm. uh, the student of knowledge aims at learning day by day. The student of Tao aims at losing day by day, by continual losing and losing in the other translations is like unlearning, uh, by continual, continual losing, one reaches doing nothing, laissez-faire. He who conquers the world often does so by doing nothing. When one is compelled to do something, the world is already beyond his conquering. Yeah. I struggled with this one. Well, yeah, because it's weird because there, to your point, there's almost this conflicting, conflicting advice between reasonable action and simply non-action. Mm -hmm. and yeah, there, I mean, there is something like, I, I think this is like, uh, oh, it's hard, so hard to put these concepts into words, but like, if you just take net, like just take marketing, for example, right? It's like, I feel like when somebody's starting off, they are like trying a bunch of shit. Like there's, they're just doing a lot of stuff, you know, they're doing SEO, they're doing social, they're doing like all this activity. And as somebody like gets better and better, I feel like things actually, you strip things away 
and to and by the end you're kind of like just doing it on vibes <laughs> like yeah. you're just like this feels like it'll work and you're not there's no frameworks there's no like you know it, it, it's like you almost don't even need like an analytics tool or anything at that point you're just like hey i know that you know this feels like it's gonna work so it's maybe there's something to that of like this stripping stuff away like you, you know this losing everyday idea that you're just actually losing things that you were holding on to um and that's what kind of gets you closer to mastery yeah and I, I'll, I'll it's like one, a curve or something like yeah yeah, yeah know, one one reference i'll make on that neil's and we talked about doing this book at, at some point but like the alchemy of finance by george soros yes yeah. And where he talks about, like, basically, as he got better in his career, he basically used his back pain to decide what to invest in. <laughs> <laughs> because his, like, emotional attunement to information was so much stronger than his rational one that he would basically use his chronic back pain to tell him whether he should, like, buy or sell something that he was focused on. And that was, like, his most reliable indicator, uh, which is just, like, fascinating and i think there's a certain degree of bullshit in there like i know one of his kids wrote a response to that that was basically like yeah he's sort of like you know he was actually super data driven and did all these things right and like he said it was based on his back but really all this other stuff was going on but like it could be both right it like, could be both yeah it, and so i and kind of like on that note there's another uh chapter or verse in here that i feel like um gets closer to the, to what we were thinking oh yeah here it is okay so <clears throat> this idea of like doing nothing or like non-action uh 11 so like in my read it does a good job of i think like expanding this nuance let's see okay i think mine's better uh all right 30 spokes share the wheel's hub. It is the center hole that makes it useful. Shape the clay into a vessel. It is the space within that makes it useful. Cut doors and windows for a room. It is the holes that make it useful. Therefore, profit comes from what is there. Usefulness from what is not there. So there's a little bit of this element of like, if you... <clears throat> It, there, there's something about, you know, maybe you guys have heard this phrase too, like music is the space between the notes, right? Like it's, yeah. there's something about the not doing that creates some of the value, right? Or even like the space between doing. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you're, you're right, deal because it does feel like, okay, are they saying do nothing? Or are they saying like, don't do too much? Or... It could just be that there were multiple authors and with multiple conflicting ideas and each one is just meant to give you a different like thing to noodle on. I wonder if this is one of those things where like it sounds contradictory, but it's like, instead of being like 180 degrees, it's like 170 degrees. Mm. And you sort of need to, it's like uh, there's a Tyler Cowen interview I really like where he talks about people who are both very stubborn and very easy to work with. And it's like you can actually think of people who are like that uh, or people who like are very lazy and very hardworking, you know? Um, where like, it appears sometimes like they're doing nothing, but they're actually, Nat's smiling. I think, Nat, you're, you're a little like this, right? You're like- I was just gonna say, Nat's like all three of these things. 
Like, this is literally I was, nuts. I was thinking of a deal for stubborn but easy to work with. <laughs> okay, yeah, I can see. I could definitely see that too. Yeah, I guess that probably applies to me too, though. Uh, but I wonder if these are all examples of like the 170 degree, and like when you t- when you oscillate between like stubborn and easy to work with, or like action and inaction, it it's just vibes is the way Neil put it. It's like it's yeah. almost an intuitive, intuitive thing. It, it also, the passage you just read now around like action and inaction sounds a lot like parenting. Yeah. Well, I, I think it sounds like a lot of things, right? And, and that's where some of the stuff really, I, for me, resonates in the sense of like, very, very often the best thing to do is nothing. Right. And that might be one of the core lessons it's getting at is, and, and this is just like a chronically very hard thing for humans to do, right? Like we always want to do something to solve a problem, but so often the answer is to just do nothing or do like way less than you think. Right. Like I, who was I reading? I I, got, I hate when you remember a really good reference, but you can't think of where it came from. Um, I have one right now that I can't remember where it came from. Oh, That's you know what? Uh, I, I know where this one came from. It, it was um, Cal Newport's interview on Sam Harris that I was telling you guys about before the episode, uh, where Cal was basically making the point that like, when you look at a, when you look at somebody who you consider super productive, they are often day to day, very unproductive. But if you look at somebody who seems in the moment, very productive, on a long time scale, they're often fairly unproductive. And, you know, he was using the reference of like somebody who's constantly starting a new business or a new blog or a new project every six, 12 months, but never really get anywhere because they just like give up on it and move on to the next thing. And so over 10 years, it's like, oh, they didn't really produce anything. But then he used the example of like John McPhee, you know, really famous nonfiction writer who was like writing an article about birds, I think and couldn't figure out how to start the article and so he literally just like sat on a picnic bench in his backyard for two weeks and stared at the birds to try to figure out how to open his article and if you looked at him in that moment it would be like what are you doing like you're on an article deadline (laughs) you need to work uh but over his whole career he's been this incredibly prolific incredibly productive writer and that that feels like a little bit of the difference that it's trying to get at here is like very, very often you just need to do nothing and let nature take its course. And that will be better than like running back and forth in a million different directions. Right. Like yeah. I, the, the last analogy I'll throw in, cause I, I really like this one. I've used it before is like zigging and zagging across a line doesn't necessarily change like the slope of that line. Right. So like it might be going up and to the right anyway, just because you're zigging and zagging back and forth across it doesn't mean you're actually making it go up any faster. Right. Yeah. There's an, there's an investor. I can't remember who it was, but some investor on Twitter, which I'm just like somebody who's like, no, like some hedge fund guy, I think I forget who or, or VC or somebody. The, the point they're trying to make was more relevant than who they are. Um, but I wish I could give them credit. The, the point they were trying to make is you could have the right, investment philosophy in your, and they're talking about public investments, like that you could have made the right investment and in a moment of boredom or like second guessing yourself, completely ruin it. So like, Mm -hmm. I think the example they were giving was like last year or or the last couple of years, if you were investing in like oil equities, 
they were oil and gas equities, you were, you know, you were buying in at an extremely low price relative to what it is right now because, you know, COVID had kind of decimated oil demand. And you could have like held on to those for like a year and they didn't really go anywhere. And then if you were just second guessed yourself or thought too much about it or, you know, uh, got bored and you're like, yeah, I want to move something around in my portfolio, you sell it. And like, literally you were right. You would have had like a four X or a five X or, and you had the philosophy right the entire time, but just out of boredom, you fucked it up. So basically their point was like, don't check your portfolio too often. Like you have your strategy. If something happens that changes your fundamental strategy, that's different, but don't just like check it so that you're, you know, and out of boredom, sell something or buy something that doesn't, you know, isn't actually a smart thing to do. Um, so yeah, it was like, it was kind of the same point that like, just don't do anything in many cases is the right answer. Like you already did the work to come up with your philosophy and your, um, your strategy and it, by continually doing stuff, sometimes you are actually going to hurt yourself. Mm -hmm. Which is, it's interesting how that seems like a very persistent life lesson across many disciplines. It comes up in a lot of different philosophies, right? Like that, that there's clearly something fairly core about that. Which, well, which is also probably true to the human condition, right? Where it's yeah. like we, we can assuage our, our uh, or we can like not be as uh, anxious if, we, if we're doing something. Like we feel right. like we're making progress and, you know, it's, not, it's like that anxiety calming thing of like, oh, I'm busy. So I'm, I must be doing something productive. I, I actually had this conversation uh, with my therapist at one point where I was like, I think video games are actually very good for somebody like me. Because sometimes you have a strong urge to like go do something and you need an outlet that feels productive that isn't impeding the like actually productive things. Because sometimes it's better to just like let stuff sit and not, you know, touch it. Like not not try to bang out twice as many articles in a week because they're gonna like get right. worse. Not go play with your portfolio because you're gonna do stupid shit, right? Like literally playing Pokemon is better than going and like trying to start some new side hustle that's going to like take time away from the actual main things you should be working on uh which is again it's like unintuitive but <clears throat> there is like value to if you, if you can't make yourself not be productive then find a way to be productive or to feel productive that is not <laughs> like harming the other things that will do better by being left alone maybe get like a hobby or something <laughs> yeah, exactly. What what a concept. Doing something for fun instead of to make more money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah remember when we had hobbies instead of side hustles? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God, fucking losers. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's why fitness stuff is good too, right? It's like sometimes it's no, better exactly. to just go for a run than to try to work more. Yeah, because yeah, you feel productive, but you're not gonna like harm yourself in the process. It also makes all the sad voices in your head go away. Yes, exactly. Best antidepressant. To beat them into submission. <laughs> I used to have this list in Notion. I haven't used it in a couple of years. I'm just trying to see if I still have it. It was I called it my free time menu because I would mm. like almost get like too anxious when I was when I was just like doing nothing. It's like oh, I yeah. need to like look at this pre-approved list of activities that I've done. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think it's a great idea. Cosette and I had that for a while for like after work and pre dinner. 
It, it was like a happy hour alternatives list. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it was very helpful. It's a good one. What, what, what were some things that were on there? Like, uh, like, gosh, I, I'm sure I have it somewhere in Notion too. I'd have to go look it up. But the 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 ones that we converged on were like some form of exercise, like usually just going for a walk yeah. or whatever. Which, yeah. once you have a kid, that becomes like way more attractive too. Because you can't. Yeah. Like, your, your Is there like a minimum age on? Bit on a happy hour like baby can come until they're like six and then you can't we, come from six to 20 yeah months. yeah it so there, <laughs> there's some difference between so like a, a restaurant that serves alcohol and has a bar will usually let you bring your kid in and like a wine bar and a brewery and stuff those will usually let you bring your kids in the places that don't are often like bar bars and i think there's some difference with like liquor and stuff um mm, yeah, but we We'll we'll take her to like breweries and wine bars and stuff pretty often, and it's like never an issue. It's really only like cocktail places, or then like, but I mean, you wouldn't bring a kid to Sixth Street anyway. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I think if you wanted to, they'd be like, eh, no. Uh, so I'd be like, and you're a bad parent. Yeah, exactly. You. <laughs> <laughs> Although you know what, I take that back because there there was one day where I got like invited to a like crypto happy hour on rainy street and it, and Rainy's another one of the like drinking streets in Austin. And it was like, a it was a bar bar, but like fun outdoor hip bungalow type spot. And I just brought uh, my daughter in like the front carrier and she was like bouncing around <clears throat> and she had fun. And like for for all of the like single guys I was hanging out with, it was great. Like you know, girl talking fodder because you know all of the women <laughs> coming in would be like, oh my god, there's a baby. Uh, <laughs> and Zach Obron, who I know you guys know, showed up with yeah. his son too, and so we're just like bouncing around with our kids uh, at this bar, and it was totally fine. So you you can get away with it sometimes. I don't really. I I feel like the rules are like half emotional. Right? It's like how does the bar feel right now? <laughs> or how does the bouncer feel? <laughs> Like get there on the gray area where the bouncer's like, I'll let you in, but I don't think you want to be here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it was okay because it was like the afternoon and they had no business. Right? It's like, do they need your money right now? <laughs> okay, what other ones should we read? Um, do we have a good segue? So I have one that's I have one that's sixty eight, which is kind of a. I mean, it's not the non doing, but it's uh, um, one short of the best number. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Sorry, yeah, go 68. ahead. I'm just deciding which translation to to read. I'll do the JH McDonald one. That's the closest, I think. So I'll just read it. It says the best warriors do not use violence. The best generals do not destroy indiscriminately. The best tacticians try to avoid confrontation. The best leaders become servants of their people. This is called the virtue of non competition. This is called the power to manage others. This is called attaining harmony with the heavens. Mm. Um, yeah, I like that one. And the thing that made that made me uh, actually, so it's kind of cool, like reading two books simultaneously. So for our multiple books simultaneously, um, Andrew Andrew Lynch is doing a podcast like uh, about like books and movies, basically. And so I'm going on it later this week. Um, and we're doing The Godfather. And... Actually, this section, as I read it, I'm like, this is like literally the dawn. 
like this is like his philosophy where you know he doesn't issue and there's even like sections in the godfather where it talks about his character this doesn't come across in the movie because it's a movie you know you don't have the room for exposition but like they talk about his philosophy and he his philosophy is no empty threats um no like uh no threats or anything uttered out of anger um, like he views those as very frivolous things. And there's like a lot of conflict between him and his oldest son who has a, a big temper of how his, his oldest son actually issues a lot of threats and is violent, but many times doesn't follow through on his threats. And so he's like not taken as a man of his word in the way that his father is, where if his father threatens you and says, he's going to kill you, he's going to kill you. Like there's, that's it. Um, but in this case, like the thing that kind of tied, tied this back to this is, one of his philosophical ideas is he doesn't, even though he's the head of a mafia organization, like he actually doesn't use violence as much as possible. And if he has to use violence, it's because something got messed up. Like it's, yeah, he does it. He does use violence, but it's a, he views it as like, he fucked up if there's some violence being done, like something happened. Um, this, something happened that shouldn't have. This reminds me of, it feels like this has ties to 42 and to eight. Uh, in 42, it ends with the strong and violent will not die a natural death. Mm. Which that was such a good, like, single yeah. sentence articulation of that. Uh, and yep. also, yeah, it's interesting tied to The Godfather. Uh, it seems <laughs> to also be part of that same philosophy. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I think also, like, the thing, the idea ma makes sense, too. It's like, if you're, even if you're, like, let's say in, like, a work situation, too, if you have to, you know, confront someone who works with you that they're not doing their job properly, I mean, you shouldn't avoid those types of confrontations, but if that has to happen, something went wrong already somewhere. Like maybe you hired the wrong person or you gave them the wrong task or, you know, they, they weren't the right fit for the job or they're, you know, screwing up somehow. But like, if to get to that confrontation point, actually, you probably, like, that wasn't where things went wrong. That was like something got messed up ahead of that. And so the best ones probably are not letting things get to that point. Yeah. And that's a cool, cool idea here. Um, yeah. This is one that I didn't highlight last time, but this time when I saw it, I was like, Oh, this is actually a really interesting point that if you do have to get to that, that, you know, confrontation point in whatever context, whether it's war or mm -hmm. uh, I, mean, I guess the war context is that means diplomacy failed or your soft power tactics failed and you have to, go into a violent conflict. There is um, sort of like yeah. a, like a Icarus thing here where it seems to be one of the broad themes is like the, the relationship between like action and consequence is pretty direct. So, uh, if you're like frequently in competition, either over land or something else, then you generally stand to lose as much or more than you stand to gain. And it's sort of, it, competition very broadly defined, like the broadest sense. You could even throw desire in there. Uh, so eliminating all of it. So like an eight, they're talking about, again, uh, without competition, it's like you have peace. I think it, did you have a follow-up thought there, Adil? You're looking intensely. Uh, no, I was just uh, reading through the quote, but you go ahead. Okay. I was going to say it also ties in with this idea that comes up a few times that I really like and feels temporarily relevant about like this idea of striving i think the that that line was in the one you read neil or maybe the one before it but it's also in 24 i really like this first line uh i'm reading the lynn 
Yutang Yutong uh, version from the Tao and you. Uh, twenty-four, you said. Twenty-four, yeah. 24, uh, yeah. He who stands on tiptoe does not stand firm. He who strains his strides does not walk well. And it's kind of this idea of like, there's a, uh, and going back to the like, do nothing. It's almost like, okay, you can walk, but don't sprint, right? Or you can stand up tall, but don't get up on your tiptoes and make yourself unsteady. Try to like show off or be taller than you are. Uh, and it, you know, we often bring this back to finance, but it, it makes me think of like leverage, right? It's mm. like people who try to trade with more money than they actually have tend to be the ones who get wiped out because, you know, they're standing on their tiptoes. And like sometimes it works, but pretty often on a long enough timeline, it blows up. And it, it kind of just keeps going back to this idea of like moderate, moderate effort, right? This kind of like middle path. Uh, to all of these things, which ties in again with what you're just saying around like anger and aggression, or like obviously a soldier has to have some degree of aggression, but it's in check, right? It, it's managed. Um, it, that that whole like not letting your virtues become your vices does feel like a pretty strong thread through a lot yeah. of the pieces we've read so far. Yeah, and it's even also like your strengths can become, well, yeah, I guess, yeah, your vices, or sorry, your virtues become your vices kind of thing. It's like, you might be really good at one particular thing. And it, this could even be true for like, work, like a work situation or sports or anything where it's like, you know, you've, you have a really good uh, defense, let's say in football or something like that. And you just overly rely on that and never rely on your your offense it's like anything you i guess you overly rely on can then become your weakness right it's just yeah it's just like you are you're kind of leaving yourself to if something goes wrong with that that strength then you have nothing else like there's nothing left to fall back on and i think in a work context it's even a little bit more clear where like you might be really good at i don't know like let's say if somebody is really good at sales for example and they just like are starting something and they just over over index on the sales side of things without actually building like the product that they're selling. And, you know, yeah, you might be able to get a lot of sales up front. And then, you know, when it comes time to actually deliver, you, you know, are under, under, uh, what is it? Over promising, under delivering. Yeah. Well, and I feel like we more often see the opposite, right? The other product. way around too. Exactly. Yeah. Products people yeah. who just want to like think adding new features is going to bring in all of the customers, but it you know you're gonna have to actually like i i guess both are vices right like yeah both, taking both to their are bad. extreme both yeah. are bad yeah it's like the the answer is somewhere in the middle of that but you're right more people probably skew on the product side and then under uh under invest on the sales side because it's uncomfortable the middle way when middle you guys way. are reading this and taking notes what stood out to you as like something you're doing that's like wildly incongruous 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 uh with this book with this book yeah Ooh, that's a good question i know um, mine. do you have yours no i have mine i can go first i'm fine with that yeah um yeah i think i i definitely do have a bit of that shiny object syndrome sometimes where i chase after like new things rather than sit and you know continue with the things that i'm already working on you know, it's like you hit that plateau point 
in anything, you know, you hit that, you, there's like that initial growth and that plateau and you got to kind of push through to get to that next plateau. And that's for me, the danger zone when it starts plateauing, then my eyes start looking at other things Yeah, like, Oh, what's this other shiny thing over here rather than like <laughs> pushing through the, the plateau. So that's something uh, that I'm trying to, you know, like reading this, I was like, shit, I need to like be able to sit with something for a lot longer and let those things kind of compound. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do now, you know, moving, even all the things we've talked about with this podcast, you know, and our plans for it and stuff. It's like, I mean, this is probably actually my, this is actually my longest running project. <laughs> yeah. It's my second longest running one. Yeah, besides the blog, right? Yeah, yeah. And the blog even had a reinvention along the way. So, yeah, I mean, like, we had a little bit of a reinvention. We added a co-host. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he was already on the show. You already had like I'm five not. episodes under your belt. <laughs> yeah, I'm 70, so I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you were the only like recurring guest on the show. <laughs> My So the one that came to mind when you asked that question to deal for me is like the... Like I'm, I can be very impatient with, uh, you know, so like for me, it's hard with writing because you do see people who have like super successful writing careers or magnum opi in their like twenties or early thirties. Mm -hmm. And so there's that element of like, I need to work faster and harder because, and this is like fucking stupid because I'm 29. Right. But there's still that sense of like, oh, I'm getting old. Like it's too late. Right. Like I should have had, you know, a big hit by an hour. This one has to be a big hit because like, you know, I, I don't want to, I want to be like as good as the people who have had stuff like this quickly. Uh, and I think that that, that instinct is, I think it's like decently common. Right. And like everybody has other versions of it where they're always comparing themselves to super successful people, their age. And, uh, the, like that's actually why I love the like zigging and zagging across a line doesn't like make the line go up faster. Like analogy for me, that's very helpful because then I can be like, okay, am I like zigging and zagging or do I just need to like be patient and keep like doing what I'm doing and it'll like get somewhere interesting eventually. And often it's like the latter, uh, but it's very tempting to be like, oh, I need to, you know, like start a TikTok because that will help like my newsletter grow faster and it's like not growing fast enough. And so like nobody will read my book. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and so the, like that part is super helpful. And then the other one related to that with the book is like, and it talks about this a little bit in the book where it's basically, you know, it's talking about like the master, the one who knows the way is like calm and steady. And man, there was even like, there, I'm trying to remember which one it is. I'll, I'll find it after I finish this uh, monologue. But basically, like the the like slow burn is better than the like really quick flame. Uh, and so I like well, one thing I, I've done that's this is like a helpful psychological exercise for me is try to find authors whose like best work was very late in their life. So mm. I've used this example before, but like Dr. Seuss, I think objectively his best book is like, Oh, the places you'll go. And it's literally like the second to last one he ever wrote. And I think he wrote it in his eighties, maybe. Wow. So like, that's cool. Right. Yeah. You know, he, he worked on all and you know, he's got tons of bangers, right? Like he's got an incredible <laughs> library of great work, but <laughs> it's, it's super cool that his la like last or penultimate one was like, his best uh or i i'm reading this novel right now called uh 
Children of Time. And like really, really good, it, excellent sci-fi, like very cool world building. Uh, it's it's in this like category I hadn't heard of before of like evolutionary SF. So it's, right now. <laughs> yeah, it's based, it's based on this premise of like, or, you know, a lot of part of it's based on the premise of humans go try to terraform a planet by dropping down. And this isn't spoiling anything. This happens in like the first chapter, but trying to drop down monkeys and then releasing a virus that is specifically programmed to re-engineer their DNA across generations to make them smarter and more capable as quickly as possible. Um, but the like terraforming, like something goes wrong with the terraforming capsule, basically where all of the monkeys die on the way in, but the virus still gets released and the planet still gets terraformed. And so instead of like infesting the monkeys, it infests the like spiders and ants and all of the like insects. And so you've got all of these insects that are developing human level intelligence. And then like, what does oh, that wow. look like? And what does society look like with, you know, spiders who are as smart as humans uh it's super interesting premise right but the i think i think the author is like 62 or something when he wrote it and he, he's had other popular books as well but this one seems like the one that's like really hit the most and like that's really cool too uh it, you know I, I don't know like that that for me like finding those examples i find very helpful for like combating this urge when just like reading philosophy doesn't do it. I, like I have this problem, or I think most people have this problem where you read these like ideas in philosophy and you go, oh, that's nice, right? Like I agree with that. And then you you fail to like implement it in any meaningful way in your life <laughs> because it's like, it's not enough to like recognize that an idea is good. There has to be some way of interpreting here. I, I had a math teacher who uh, in high school who would say that like my problem was that I would like read a problem and then read the solution and then say like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Like, I get that. I see how you got there, but that's not the same as being able to solve the problem, right? It's like, Nat, it actually reminds me of being able to understand the language and being able to speak that language. Those are two yeah. very different things. Like I can understand Punjabi, but I can't speak it at all. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even tell you where to start, but if someone yeah. is speaking it, I can be like, oh yeah, that's like what they mean. I can like, I understand it. But then if you ask me to respond to them, I could, there's no chance. There's totally. no, I wouldn't even know where to start. Well, it's like we were talking about in the beginning before we started recording, right? Like just because somebody talks a lot about stoicism doesn't mean that they're not like a raging asshole in real life. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like there's a big difference between reading a book and actually like being able to live the ideas in it. Yeah, the people living the ideas are probably not writing a book. Yeah, exactly. They don't need to prove anything. <laughs> Another one to add to your list is uh, East of Eden was written when Steinbeck was 50. Oh, wow. That's his best book, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah and it's one of the last ones. If you look at his uh, wow. bibliography, it's to the bottom. Well, and if, if you look at a lot of people like successful people in every domain besides like sports almost all success typically comes in the like 40 50 60 range and i think sports that, is by death. sports is just because it's a it's just special thing. yeah yeah it's just like a yeah. physical thing yeah but uh although i would say i would say if you use the scale of an athlete's career as like like let's say an athlete's career is 15 years like a good athlete 
versus like I don't know someone an author's career could be mm. fifty years. Right. So if you apply like the relative scales, you actually see the same thing in sports. So yeah. Michael Jordan didn't win a championship until he was like, wow. Let's see, how old was Michael Jordan when he won his first championship? He was not like twenty two or anything. He was twenty eight, which is like middle. And he was he's a pro since he was like twenty one. Yeah. I think even younger, he might have been 20 at that time. I think he might have skipped his senior year. Yeah, so yeah, so he was like 20 years old. So it was eight years in, right, to like a 15, 16-year career. So it's like halfway, which for an author might be 25 years in. Right. Well, career. I think about this with uh, like endurance sports too. That I find very interesting because on a, on a like world record scale, you typically won't have anybody making the podium outside of their 30s. But on an individual scale a lot of people can improve on their marathon time or their Ironman time or whatever into their like fifties and sixties. Right. So, and that could, you know, it could just be that like the practice outweighs the like physical degradation or, you know, you can stave off a lot of it by staying really active, but even there, there's a temptation to think like, Oh, you know, once I'm out of my twenties, like, you know, better just like not pick up a sport now, but, you like you you run any race and, true. yeah you will see people in the like top five ten percent of finishers who are in their like 60s and 70s which i always find very motivating i i love getting passed by a super old person i'm just like all right cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah motivation yeah. good news for both of us exactly uh, i i remember like as a kid we'd always watch i don't know whatever soccer game was on and as a joke you know i was never that good at soccer but my parents would always be like yeah it could be you i'd be like 16 years old and in the back of my mind, I was, I'd always kept it as like, yeah, if I wanted to be an athlete, you know, if I really tried. Yeah. Uh, and then I was watching the uh, England-France game, and the commentator was like talking about a 32-year-old on the field and literally said, yeah, he's the old man on the field. I was like, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had no, that. that's so true in like basketball as well. If a player's 32, they are definitely like, most likely the oldest player on the court. Watching <laughs> college football is really weird. Football, I would actually say, is a weirder one uh, in terms of ages relative to soccer and basketball, though, because football, you can actually, like, quarterbacks at least don't hit their prime usually, so they're like 29, 30. Hmm. And, but I think because a lot of being a quarterback is mental. Yeah. I think I, I some of the meant, other positions do younger. Yeah. I just meant it was weird watching, like, we went to a UT game after Thanksgiving and. I was literally a decade older than the quarterback. And I was like, yeah, this is very like strange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never quite had that experience before. But I was like, huh, yeah. okay. So you know, that, that is very different from some of this other work. Right. But, but then, you know, it, no, but you I just, think if you do the relative time scale, it actually yeah, is yeah. probably crazy different. Well, it, yeah, it depends on the sport, of course. I think like some sports definitely skew like for sure younger, but. To your point of like people doing their best work, kind of that mid-career mm -hmm. area, like in in uh, writing or in business and stuff, like you do see some similar stuff. I mean, LeBron's actually another example. He didn't win until later in his career either, and then he won a lot. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, and I mean, Brady won in his career pretty early, but then he continued winning, you know, in different stages of his career. But it's like it doesn't all have to be at the beginning. Yeah, and yeah. I think we miss that with how media even talks about like business and authors and stuff. It always focuses on like. Oh, this 18 year old made like a million dollars last year doing this, but no one talks about like the 75 year old who started a business the previous year and is doing the same thing. Yep. You know? 
Yeah, I mean, you just have to sort Literally, of like... we're old guys now. We're like, why are people talking about old people? <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like you really have to mentally discount those stories because they do make, give you this very skewed perception of like at what age people have those big successes, right? And sometimes it's just like people are special, right? Like Hofstadter yeah. wrote GEB when he was 34. Like, I, I'm probably not going to do that by the time I'm 34. I'm okay with that. <laughs> like, Looks like this is another one of those like action inaction things that by even entertaining this question, it like hurts you by thinking about yeah. it. Right? Uh, it yeah, it just makes you sad. It doesn't. It doesn't yeah. make you better. <laughs> it's, like compiling the counter examples is good, but probably like shutting the whole thing out is. It's sort of like you like you find love when you're not looking for it, right? That's the cliche. Like this strikes me as the uh, career equivalent. I, I think. I think this goes back to the like. Uh, in the, the practical versus the ideal with like philosophy stuff it's like a deal you are correct in the ideal sense that like yes oh, it'd be yeah. better to just not think about this but <laughs> <laughs> i am going to think about this better tools why didn't you think about it it was <laughs> tying it back to the ideal in the book yeah no i i get you what's your, what's yours a deal Probably shiny objects is the big one for me. Mm -hmm. um, it, it used to be the total inability to like commit for anything for a long period of time, but I I finally managed to outgrow that one the last few years, and now it's basically the. Uh, and I would classify these slightly differently. It's like um, the big domains for me were very hard to like stay consistent in, whether it was like career, family, city, friends, whatever. Uh, and yeah, now it's more like a bit more like what, uh, Neil described. Um, so I don't know. There's a, there's a laundry list of things I'm probably incongruous with here. There's a thing I've been thinking a lot about recently is, uh, I have this tendency, um, and I do this a lot when I'm like in a position of like, I don't want to say authority, but like relative authority and have to say something I'm not super comfortable with and just leave the silence there. I'm, I'm bad at that. Like I'm, that's something I need to get better at. And it's another one of these like action inaction things where it's like the more I talk in those situations, I'm actually like harming it. Uh, and I just need to like shut up <laughs> and it's really hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, those are probably the two that are most pertinent on my mind is inaction and then shiny objects. The thing I've realized though, at a very materialist level, this is so minor, but it, for me, it's been consequential. The high I get from like, here's a cool new thing, let's buy it and play with it. I also get when I sell something. So mm. I've started just like selling <laughs> stuff on OfferUp and Facebook Marketplace. And I'm like, yeah, wow, we got rid of this. And <laughs> it actually scratches the same itch. And I think what I actually crave is just the velocity of things moving inside and out. <laughs> <laughs> actually i'm not gonna lie i think you might be right even about the selling things like i a few years a couple of years ago i was like oh i have a lot of books that i've bought that i like you know there's books you buy that you're like i want to hold on to this one and then there's books you buy that are you're just like you read it and you're like i'm never gonna read this again never even gonna look at this again and so i got rid of maybe like i don't know 30 40 books and i just sold them on like ebay and it was so fun like, it's not even about the money you made because it's not, not much, right? The money you're going to make from 40 books, like used books on eBay. 
was probably honestly more work than it was worth it. But, like, it was just fun being like, oh, someone bought this book. Like, now I'm going to put it in the envelope and, like, mail it out. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It just <laughs> felt it just felt good. Uh, Matt, to your earlier point around, like, ideal versus practical, like, I feel like so much of, like, reading this is not necessarily doing it, but, like, mapping it mm -hmm. to something you can do. Like, I think of, like, the free time menu. It's like, ideally, I wouldn't sit around shaking my, like, leg up and down for an hour. But I do, so it's like I might as well play Fortnite for thirty minutes and chill out. Yeah. And uh, I and this is you know my my grandmother would tell me this when I was a kid, and I never really understood it. I always viewed it as like giving up is the whole like get to know yourself and then live around yourself. But that's different for everybody, right? It's like right whatever is the thing that allows you to live with yourself within the bounds of realistic, like you know, not making the ideal. That's why I have a problem with some of the, like, like, I love Goggins's book, Can't Hurt Me. But I think that the message of, like, oh, just try really hard and then you won't be fat anymore. is like, not very helpful for most people. <laughs> right? Like, like, oh, you just got to, like, you know, work harder. Right? Just, like, get after it. Like, it's fun to read. And I think it works for the people who are already kind of hardwired that way. Like, he seems to be, but, but in general, it's not super practical, right? It's like, it's this kind of interesting question, right? Like why, why doesn't most advice work? It seems like we have enough advice for most problems, right? Like we don't need more like diets, right? Like they, they clearly aren't working. <laughs> so we need, a, we need person advice fit. Yeah, I'm sure the like yeah, one. I'm the, sure whoever you know, the, the, whoever starts a TikTok today about weight loss is going to be the one to finally like solve it. Solve right? it. I, I don't. And no, I, don't, I mean, I think that, then there's also the question of like, if you're reading a book like that, you probably are already motivated and just kind of like, I don't know. It's almost like masturbation, basically. I, I don't even know if that's ways. true, though. Right? You think about like. I think the vast majority of people who read those books don't actually change anything afterwards. It's you no, feel that's what I'm saying. Oh, like, oh, you that's already what you're know all yeah, the yeah. stuff. Yeah, you, you already know, know all the stuff and you feel like you're doing something because by reading, reading the book. it. Yeah. You know, yeah. You're like, oh, I'm making progress towards this by reading it. Like, you know, it's that I think that yeah, there's a lot of that too. But yeah. they're not actually the ones making taking the actions for it. Like, right. I don't know. Do you guys feel this way as you get older? Like, I feel like as I get older, I realize there's like way fewer concepts than I ever thought there were. Hmm. Like, it's not that like, there's, it's not like there's not enough more to learn, but like the base principles of like what works or what, how the world works and stuff. It's like, I used to think like everything was its own domain. Like, oh, sports are like this and like business is like this and like health is like this and all that. And it's like, there's so many like, I don't know, like common themes yeah. to all of them. There's only a few axioms and then everything else is just recombinations of that. Yeah. Or downstream of that where it's like, yeah. Oh yeah, this is like a child, you know, like a parent child type thing. Like this is a child of that. Yeah. And, well, it's kind of like yeah. when, when we were talking about uh, the 10 commandments as like a pretty decent base algorithm for a society. It's like a lot of good advice does resolve to those. And, you know, we were just talking about how much advice in, business life you know parenting whatever resolve to some of the core ideas in the Tao, and like yeah. to your to your point I, it's interesting because i think that there is some 
you know, on the one hand, you have the people who are like, oh, you have to just like study the mental models or whatever. And then like everything makes sense. I don't think that's true. I don't think you can just like skip straight to the axioms and have the world yep. make sense. Like you need no. the the derivatives, like the experiential pieces of it to like actually understand the underlying similarities across different fields. Right. But there, yeah. there probably is some degree to which you can like try to train yourself out of domain dependence. Well, one, right. one concept that I know, like, I know Nat, you've embraced this one and like, that's kind of a, uh, similar to me. It's like that whole, the idea of, an, uh, being anti-fragile, right. that's like a idea that I feel like you can kind of apply to multiple things, you know, it, without even experientially living it. Like, you're just kind of like, okay, yeah, this, th this just carries over from one domain to the other. But I do agree, like to achieve mastery in something you kind of need to you can't just like come in with the mental model and like expect to be, you know, cause, well, I, cause there's a lot of like, there, I don't even, the, I don't even mean mastery. I mean, like, I don't think you can understand the axiom without yeah. the experience without living it. first. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you, you need, you need to do something that teaches you about like compound growth or whatever yes. you before you understand. Yeah. Yes. And that could be but farming, that could be investing, it. right? But right, but once you once you understand that from one domain, you can apply that to another domain. It's like, oh yeah, this is like farming. You know, if you if you went yeah. from farming to like I don't know something else that's like that involves compound interest. So it's yeah, you could kind of see that. Um, I was going to say one meta theme of this book is like fluidity, right? It's like mm. not being fixed and rigid, and being more. Uh, fluid if you think about like water just kind of or any fluid i guess takes the shape of the container yeah yeah there's like there, there's definitely like some of that here and i'm trying to find some examples of that i had at least one highlight related to that yeah same it's like uh bruce lee's book striking thoughts talks about this a lot too mm, i haven't read that it's pretty good it's very it's very aphoristic um uh, I'm going to run in a minute, but you guys should continue without, uh, the thing I was going to add on the axioms independent of, uh, some application. I was watching this lecture the other day, which is excellent by the way, and we'll throw it in the show notes. Uh, and at one point it talks about like humans being very narrative driven and the example it gave felt relevant here, which was that 10 years before Darwin published origin of the species they found this skull called like the Gibraltar skull, which was like a half human, half ape skull basically. And they just kind of filed it away because it, there was no narrative for it to fit into, even though it should have been like this earthquaking discovery. And then it came back out like 30 years later because then they finally had, it's like the skull is almost like this axiomatic thing, right? It's this truth yeah. that you have to reckon with. But there was no framework for it and there was nothing to apply it to. So it was actually just like that is for a while. I love that. That is very true for a science in general though. Yeah. That, think, like yeah. Like uh when we did scientific revolutions, right? Like Kuhn talks about this with like retrograde motion, right? Is always sort of the classic example that comes up. It's like you you know, we saw planets going backwards, but obviously they're all <laughs> yeah. still rotating around the earth. So they must just be moving in these like little spirals around themselves. <laughs> yeah. It couldn't, it couldn't be that there's another explanation, right? <laughs> Not Bye, too. Oh. Enjoy See the rest. Deal.
Yep. All, all right. right. So yeah, I'm just copying all these links that you've been putting in here, or at least some of them. So we have them for the show notes later. That's kind of the to your point He's about. Gone. All right. He's let's gone. Talk now about we can it. talk shit about him. <laughs> <laughs> he had to go sell some books on eBay, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> New York City is expensive, man. <laughs> Uh, well, I was going to say to your point about like domain dependence, independence, right? It's like the, on the, on the one hand, knowing about it, you can hopefully try to practice it, right? Like you, you can hopefully remember like something in this field might apply over to here, but I feel like we so often just don't do that. And even, even if we know that some things there's domain independence and ideas transfer over, we'll come into a new field and then be like, Oh no, like this is this time it's different, right? Like right. <laughs> this time it's the the ideas don't transfer over. But it's like even to this point of like doing nothing, the and you've probably experienced this too. Like one of the most interesting things with working out and fitness is like sometimes the best way to advance is to like take a week or two off. Yeah, and that's so hard for me to do. So weird. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I've had I this with had running this a number of times. Ago. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was saying I had this a few weeks ago and I tweeted about it. That's literally what everybody responded saying is like, you shouldn't have done this. But it was like a Saturday. I had extra time and extra, I had a lot of extra energy that day. And I did my like, uh, I did my regular workout, which on Saturdays a lot of times is like, I just hit all parts of the body. I just do like some back, some chest, some shoulders, some legs, like just a little, a little bit of everything. And then I, um, and then I'm done. And usually then Sunday is like, I'm completely off. Uh, I don't, I don't, other than like go for a walk or something maybe. Um, but that Saturday I had extra energy and I was like, at the end of it, I was like, you know what? I'm not doing anything right now. Like, let me just go like run some sprints. And I did it and I felt okay. And then the next like three days, I was just like out of commission. It's done. Yeah. I was just done. And then a lot of people responded about that. Cause I basically blamed it on being in my thirties and a lot of people <laughs> responded being like, no, it's like, if you have a plan and a schedule, like you just cause you have extra energy, you shouldn't just like destroy yourself. You yeah. Just, you should have rested basically. Right. Like stuck to the rest schedule. I made um, that mistake last week. I was recovering from the flu and the first day that I felt really good, I was like, all right, yeah, like I can work out again. Let's go. And I went for a 30 yeah. mile bike ride, which Jeez. was <laughs> a terrible idea. And then I couldn't work out again for the next five days. <laughs> oh, were you just like really sore, I was, tired, like I was just wiped out? Just wiped out. Just no energy again. Yeah. And I was like, God, okay, that was dumb. <laughs> How did I do that? <laughs> yeah, one of my friends who uh, he's is really interesting. Like he's probably like five. Well, he's he's short, right? And um, but his what very number were you going to say, his... Neil? What's your short number? What were you going to say? Maybe like five six. Maybe he's okay. like five six or something. Right. Yeah. Um, no, but he's like, but he's really strong for his for his size, and he actually has some Maryland uh, state records for deadlifting for wow. his weight class. Yeah. So he's, but but so he's like really into lifting, right? Is my point. Um, one time he told me like, if you're plateauing, I've actually literally never tried this, but I sh I feel like I should at some point. He was like, if you're plateauing on a lot, you know, on like, let's say you're trying to get your bench up and you're just stuck. He was like, take two weeks off and just eat really well during those two mm, weeks and then go back to it. And he's like, it, he's like, that will work. And it's like, I, I cannot it. wrap my mind around the fact that 
by not working out, you're actually improving your lift. But he obviously knows what he's talking about more, much more than me. Dude, that was uh, basically what yeah. I did uh, for my marathon training where I did my like last 20 mile long run. And then I felt like kind of tired, but also just like super demotivated after it. And just like basically didn't run at all for the next two weeks leading up to the race and just like chilled. But then you had a great time. Did a couple, yeah. Really? And then I, I did the actual marathon faster than any of my training runs. So it was like, is that like a good strategy? Like, did I get lucky? Right. Like <laughs> what, what happened here? Cause it was super just like weird. I mean, it yeah. was like way faster than any of my training runs. So. Well, you were probably, there's probably a little bit of like adrenaline because it's like the rail. That definitely helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like being at the rail event. And then you were super rested probably. Right. But, but that is also counteracting like going six miles farther than you went in any practice runs. Right. So it's like, I I love, there's just like weird stuff like that, but it goes back to, again, the book, right? Like sometimes the best action is no action. Not doing. Exactly. Which is hard to do. It's, it is really much easier said than done. Yeah. Well, and I, again, there's like limits to all of it, right? Like I had this conversation yeah, with you're somebody not, where yeah, yeah, if you, if you back. don't run, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, I was having this conversation with somebody cause I was saying like, oh yeah, you know, my, like my big goal is to write at least like one really great book before I die. And he was saying like, oh, well, you know, have you kind of like read any of this stuff that's like, <clears throat> if you aim at a very specific goal, you're unlikely to hit it. And it's better to like, aim in the abstract and then you'll sort of like do good things as a consequence and it's like yes but like if you you know again if you like don't run then you're not gonna be able to run a marathon if you like don't try to write something really good you're probably gonna write like shitty stuff right it's like you have to figure out where that middle that like reasonable middle is no you need the goal to like orient yourself yeah yeah. around something yeah exactly it's like it's a balance. I mean, it goes back to the whole balance thing. Uh, totally. Yeah, it's like it's hard to say it. Yeah, in the uh, it's hard to say like you just can't have a goal either. Right. Right. I don't think that's yeah. good advice. <laughs> I don't think that's great advice. Either. No. But but it like you need the goal to like orient yourself. But then you need a direction along the, the way. Least. Yeah. Yes, directional goal at least. Totally. Yeah. Like your goal of writing something great before you die, it's like if you don't write, you're not going to get there. <laughs> like, exactly. You're not going to get there. <laughs> <laughs> so there's definitely a balance to the the whole idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, one thing I forgot to say about the the quote that I was saying uh, earlier about the non competition, non confrontation thing is there was also like an element of um, finite and infinite games to that, mm. where like. Because the translation I had, the one I had read was from the website that Adil shared, but the translation I had, they worded it as like, the best athlete wants his opponent at his best. The best general enters the mind of his enemy. The best businessman serves the communal good. The best leader follows the will of the people. All of them embody the virtue of non-competition. Not that they don't love to compete, but that they do it in the spirit of play. Mm. And to that goes back to, to me, Finite Infinite Games, one of our favorites, where... Yeah. The finite game, right, is like the general trying to win the war or the athlete trying to win the competition or, you know, just the the sort of very boxed uh, game. And then the infinite game is like, it's basically like the game within the game that you're playing against yourself, essentially. Exactly, yeah. It's very like inner game of tennis, right? Like the true opponent is yourself, not the other player. 
Yeah, um, the other you player want, is actually just there as a measure. As a mirror, exactly. Yeah. You, you want the other player to be at their best or at their best right. for being your opponent because that will hopefully draw you out to be your best too. Yeah, you actually hear, uh, like, once you, once you uh, like, read that concept or listen to it for the first time, if you ever hear, like, great athletes talking about opponents who, like, let's say they won because somebody was injured or, like, they won because, like, somebody messed up or, like, a like a rule, like, a line call or something like that. Yeah. The, even if they win, they're, like, kind of disappointed. Right, right. They're, like, a little bit annoyed that they won that way. <laughs> Well, the other, the like intellectual example I think of for this is it's like a lot of great philosophy writers had a living opponent who they felt like they were battling with, right? What's an example? uh, I mean, the one classic example I always think of is like Nozick and Rawls, who had very different philosophies of like state and uh, like government responsibility, where, you know, Nozick is much more libertarian, freedom, like, laissez-faire capitalist and Rawls is very like utilitarian. The state needs to provide for everybody. Uh, And they both were professors at Harvard at the same time and would apparently like debate constantly, even like get in screaming matches on the quad with each other, like, but had this very deep respect for each other. And that'd be fun to watch. Yeah. Right. And like both (laughs) loved working there because they could just constantly fight with the other one about their ideas and so they, they make both, each other sharper and better. It's exactly. Like, they both yeah. said independently that they basically could not have done their best work without the other one to like hash it out with, uh, which I think is cool. It makes me feel like I, I need a good, I need a good enemy adversary. Yeah. <laughs> Besides Oatly. <laughs> <laughs> you need to go find a new one. I've already won that one. <laughs> I know they're like dying. I know. I guess huh. it's kind of like steel manning, though, too, right? It's like they basically yeah, yeah. are forced to steel man everything because they know any like you know gaps in the armor are going to get like destroyed by their opponent. Exactly, and you're you're trying so to convince all of the new crop of freshmen to your ideas instead of the other ones. So you're like, yeah, exactly. It's like, like somebody was saying this about why Huberman is such a great podcaster for health stuff is like he's a he's a professor, like he's a teacher. You know, he's not just a researcher. And so he's used to explaining all of this stuff to, you know, undergr- undergrads, which really makes you refine your understandings of things. So I feel like that's to be probably- fair, a lot of professors are not great at explaining things to undergrads, but that's true. He's probably a good professor. He's but probably think, an actual good professor. Yeah. Yes. And I think if we compare, like, I at least enjoy his health stuff more than like Atia and Patrick. And yeah, it's more, it's less academic, weirdly. Yeah. Yeah. It's professor. more approachable. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like that that clearly plays into it so you need yeah because like atia and some of those guys it's like they obviously they're not saying anything wrong it's just like they're citing like study after study and like yeah it's like okay i've got to go read like like 50 studies now and i have no idea what all these acronyms are and just like it's and also it's like i don't know like i i I, i'm not like scientifically illiterate but at this i feel like i'm also not enough of a expert in any of these topics to be like i can tell if like, if this was bullshit, I would be able to tell it's bullshit. Totally, yeah. I've got no idea. That's actually something that I fear with the AI stuff, too, by the way. with like Well, yeah, because it lies a lot. It makes stuff up a lot. you got to be careful with it. I know sometimes, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, if it's no not idea. a topic that I know about, I would just be like, oh, yeah, this is right. The yeah, AI that's told fine. Me. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, right, I think so... we're going to have more of that, like, over time where it's just, like, um, most of us might be spewing bullshit on topics that we're not, we don't actually know about. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I mean, and think most, that it's right. I mean, that's true. With Google are doing too, that already. Ranks, just because something ranks on Google doesn't mean it's right. Also, <laughs> as, as a know. as a professional Google manipulator, <laughs> I can confirm. <laughs> As the multi-year leading expert in men's sexual health on Google, <laughs> with absolutely zero credentials. Yeah, so just because, I mean, this isn't a new thing, but... No, yeah. no. Um, okay, should we should we wrap up? Yeah, I think... So I think we're... you had any other big themes. No, yeah, I, I, I feel like we did a good job it. with like an appropriate yeah. amount of tangenting as well as, you know, covering solid amount of content from the book. That was, that was one of our better balanced episodes. I think that was quite good. It was, this might yeah. actually be one of our more focused ones. Wow. Look at, you know, we, we all decided to take this much more seriously in 23 and here we are just being serious. We had an agenda and everything, you know, you yeah, and I, we, we, we used to have agendas and we, like, me and you did back yeah. in the day we did with our weekly, when we were doing a weekly well, we in like 2018, we were on top yes. of it. Like we had very serious agendas. We had outlines, like, uh, and then we yeah, got a little, was, you know, we got a little loosey goosey, a little sloppy. That's okay, you know, we're we're bringing it back. We're we're bringing it back, exactly. But I think back. doing, you know, a like a tangent episode every two months or something, or like do it do it on a Friday as a bonus episode sometime gets like, it out of the system. Exactly, gets it out of the system. Um, yeah. Okay, so next week we're going to take a break from the great book series and do the Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter. I uh, are you joining me for that one? Is Adil joining? I am. I am. I'm midway through the book right now. Awesome. And I'm actually really enjoying it. Okay, I, cool. I, uh, I'll save it for the episode, actually. I won't say what I'm thinking. Okay. <laughs> but it's. But it, I'm excited to, to do the episode. Yeah. And I, I think if we, yeah. if, if we enjoy doing the episode and if the audience enjoys it, we can probably get Michael on for an interview, too. Because he's, be cool. he's a friend of a friend. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would be super cool. And then, Should we say like why we're like so we're we're basically just trying to mix up from the great books to also do some other books and yeah we might do some author interviews um, com- combination of things yeah. like I you know to to the point I was making before like we all sort of decided that or at least I I think I got I brought it up originally where I was like doing all of my goal planning and shit for twenty three and I was like you know the one thing I really want to like go harder on is made you think because one I love doing it it's really fun hanging out with you guys we we all have fun doing it it's a good pressure to read. And it's like, I definitely think that, uh, you know, like I don't have any interest in doing like a TikTok or doing YouTube or whatever, <laughs> but like growing a podcast, I, I mean, like we have a lot of fun doing it. And yeah. I just think that this can be really good if we like focus on it seriously. And so one of those things was getting to doing an episode a week. So <clears throat> that's what we're aiming at now. Um, yeah. Which and and not doing exclusively the great book series, which I think is good too, because the one thing I'm I'm curious about looking at our stats is like they're not as good for some of the great books ones, right? Like Exodus, they were higher during the crypto series. They were higher during the crypto series, yeah. And and so I wonder too if like bringing in some recency, people are more interested in that. I'll be curious to see how like some of the interviews do. Um, I do know from some people who listen to the show, like sometimes people will actually listen to the episode before reading deciding to read the book or not mm. or they'll click on an episode because they've heard of a book before yeah. like someone told me about for infinite chess they're like oh that book was on my list forever and i decided to just listen to your episodes about it and i still haven't read it yeah. but <laughs> i just like i just decided because i i knew it was on my list for so long i wanted to listen to that episode so yeah. maybe there's some 
you know, and I think a lot of people probably their recent ones like the Odyssey, the Iliad. They're like, yeah, I did that in high school. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> and so if people are interested. You know, maybe we'll do fewer of them, or you know, we can also get more selective with which of the great books we do. Like, I, I feel like it, it is a cool like multi year project. Though it is. I do, I do like the idea of doing them over I, time. I like uh, the idea of doing the ones even. and the ones that we think could be very good episodes. Like Tao Te Ching, I yes. think is a great episode. Um, yeah, but then it's like. I don't know, like Agamemnon, that would not be a good episode, right? And so there's like really yeah. no reason to force that. So we don't that. need to do that one. But yeah. like Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, like we never did that. We just did Seneca. I know, Sur- surprisingly. So like <laughs> kind of feels like we should circle back. And we could, I mean, we could even do Meditations and Caridion and, you know, do an, a round two on letters because it's been five years since we did that episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that might be a fun series. So we're going to play around with it. But the point is, yeah. there's going to be more Made You Think, ideally on a weekly weekly plus schedule. Cause I think the plan would be that we do a book one every Tuesday. And then we have like bonus ones here and there, either like interviewing an author or doing tangent episodes or whatever. Um, yeah. And, and then our schedules might be like, we might not all be on every single episode. Yeah. We might do it a little more like, Hey, you know, I'm joining Nat for one. Nat's doing one solo. I'm doing one solo. Then the three of us are back together. So it's going to be a little bit more. Um, we, we're obviously going to do a lot of episodes all together, but yeah. There might be some books which you know just one or two people are more into than the third person, and so we don't we don't necessarily all have to do all of it, and yeah. it's partially for scheduling purposes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we've all got jobs, and I've got kid, and you know, it's like we're busy ish. Um, but yeah, then at the end of every month, the audience can vote on who their favorite host is, and that will determine <laughs> who gets paid that month. It's like, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You're putting the penalty box. Yeah, exactly. oh, or you're not allowed to do it. You're muted during all tangents if you're <laughs> last. <laughs> you have to run a lap in between a- <laughs> topics. <laughs> Where for every for an tang- episode. Every time there's a tangent, you have to do 50 push-ups. Or something. There we go. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, so that's those are the housekeeping updates. Uh, obviously, if you're not subscribed, please do that. I, do people listen to podcasts they're not subscribed to? Is that a thing? Everybody says like, don't forget to subscribe, but. Maybe if they're so putting it on ours, YouTube. I wouldn't be surprised if ours do get listens from that. Just oh, yeah, because probably from, from like another... the book notes and stuff. Yes. And I've also heard people search for some of the books on like their podcast player mm. after they, you know, if they read it or they're interested in it, they'll just like search for, you know, like, well, I think it was more relevant during the crypto series, but like yeah. Sovereign Individual or like Revolt to the Public or something like that. Um, and then just see who did an episode on it, and people they might read be coming that, across us. People who read that one Amazon review of Sovereign Individual, and then came to the podcast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that, that funnel there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you're right. There's probably some of that. So anyway, subscribe Go if you're subscribe. not. Yeah, uh, leave us a review on Spotify or iTunes or wherever podcasts are sold. Um, what else? Say hi on Send Twitter. Yeah, send oh, yeah. Send fountain, if you're listening on Fountain. Oh, we should actually talk about Fountain. There's some cool promo tools on there that are oh, yeah? right now incredibly cheap okay. for, for reaching. I think it's more relevant for our crypto episodes. But I see. Okay. Yeah, anyway, oh, you're we'll, saying we you and I should that. talk about it after, not necessarily. Yes, okay. You and I cool. should talk about that. Yeah. I was going to say, they yeah. better pay us if we're going to do like a whole like sign up for. <laughs> we got to. Well, no, we get paid on there. That's, yeah, we would get paid. Right, right. So. Okay, cool. We'll talk. So, yeah, so send us some stats. People who've been doing it, thank you. Uh, you know, we definitely appreciate it. It's the only yeah. way right now we're financially supported. We'll probably, uh, we'll probably but, start looking for some good, uh, some good advertisers. I feel like we're starting to get into those numbers where it could be interesting. Um, yeah. 
We can talk about that. So too. if you are an advertiser interested it's in true. reaching the major thing audience, you know, we're open to it. Yeah, not we're blankest. We're thinking about it. Not, yeah, not we'll, blankest. Not blankest. Not Oatly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No TRT companies. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I think that's it. Yeah. Say hi on yeah. Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason. I'm at the real Neil S. And a deal is at a deal Majid. And maybe uh, I'll get the Neil Sony handle. Maybe Elon yeah. Musk can make that happen. There you no, go. I heard they're releasing. I'm on this. Yeah, they're, like they're releasing a ton of them. Yeah, yeah. Comes out. yeah. It's yeah. a good idea. Cool. Fingers all crossed. Right. We'll see you all next week. All right. See you guys.